welcome everybody. We're about to start. It's great to see you all again. Okay. So we are so excited to be learning again with you this Elul at Risha. Uh, this class is Symbolism and Significance, examining the Yom Kippur service Avada with Ms. Sarah Gordon. Um, as you come into the Zoom room, I'm going to invite you to become a panelist. Uh, if you accept, it just means um, that you can turn on your camera if you wish, so we can see your lovely smiling faces. And um, when Miss Gordon invites questions and comments, you can uh, turn on your microphone and ask if you wish. Um, when you're not speaking, we are we just ask that you keep yourself on mute. It minimizes the background noise so that we can all hear each other. Um, once we start, I'm going to put a link to the source sheets. You can follow along independently if you wish, but Ms. Gordon will also be sharing the sources on the screen. Um, if you have any questions or comments, they are always welcome in the chat, or if you're joining us on the Facebook Live, then in Facebook comments. So a little bit about the course before we start. In this two-part course, we will explore the Yom Kippur service of the Kohen Gadol, High Priest, a significant but sometimes enigmatic aspect of the liturgy. Through delving into the significance and symbolism behind key elements of the service, we will confront many of the fundamental questions of Yom Kippur, such as, as whether atonement can happen without repentance, the influence of fate and destiny, and the profound impact of an individual's actions can have on the community. Sarah Gordon is the Senior Director of Israel Education, M-A-E-R, for Un Unpacked Educators, a division of the Open Door Media. And previously, Sarah served as the Director of Israel Guidance and Experiential Education at Mayanot High School, where she taught Talmud and chaired a course on contemporary Israel. Sarah holds a dual master's degree in Jewish education and modern Jewish history from Yeshiva University, where she's currently pursuing her, um, doc her ED uh, doctorate as a Wexner Fellow. And <laughs> Sorry, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> as, a as a Wexner Fellow and a Davidson Scholar. Um, wow, what a CV. And with that, over to you, Ms. Gordon. Okay. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you so much um, for coming. You know, as Lily introduced, um, my name is Sarah Gordon. And uh, tonight, uh, we're going to be discussing symbolism and significance, examining the Yom Kippur service or avoda um, of the Kohen Gadol. Um, so thank you so much for that, uh, for that introduction. Um, I want to thank uh, Lily and also Rabbi John Kelson and the Drisha Institute for inviting me to speak. Um, and all the Drisha staff, I know, put everything together on the back end. So I'm really excited to learn together and to be part of such an exciting lineup um, for the Elosman. So thank you so much. Um, so I'm going to share my screen with the sources. But I know I think we're going to post them in the chat also. People want to have them on their own. Um, and we'll we'll jump right in. So, you know, I've always found that the Avoda or the Yom Kippur service of the Kohen Gadol Yom Kippur to, to be slightly misunderstood. You know, on one hand, it's this very powerful pinnacle points of the Yom Kippur davening. Recently, it's been, you know, popularized in a beautiful song by Ishai Rebo. Um, but for many, it's the part of the mafsa or a part of the service that we, I'll speak for myself, you know, kind of zone out for a little bit. You know, it's when if you brought some good reading material, maybe you take out the reading material for this part. And, you know, you kind of jump up when you see everyone's getting ready to bow uh, or anything like that. Um, especially, I think, for, for modern readers, where our, our experience of Yom Kippur is completely synagogue and prayer-based, this very technical description of a sacrificial temple service, uh, you know, incense, blood sprinkling, wardrobe changes, uh, it can often feel very foreign. So what I'd like for us to do today is to really reclaim the avoda, uh, the service, see how through examining the symbolism, the significance of the different parts of the avoda, we can get new insights into the message of Yom Kippur. And I think we're going to see that many aspects of the Avoda really center around a profound question about religious experience and what seeking out God or holiness should look like. Uh, and hopefully we'll leave with some takeaways that we can carry with us into our personal Yom Kippur experiences this year. So what we're going to do is we're going to start really with the, the original text. We're going to look at Vayikra, Perak 16, Perak Tad Zion. Um, 
which is the, the text that really gives the full description um, of the Yom Kippur service of the Kohen Gadol. And this is actually also the Torah reading on Yom Kippur. Um, it's important to note that the Mishnah and the Gemara and Yuma and the Tractate on Yom Kippur really expand on this text. They add in extra vidui's and confessions and more immersions and more clothes changes. And that's what you're going to see really in your mafsar. Um, But for today, we're going to kind of focus on that original text and kind of try to do a deep dive um, into it. Um, next week, part two, we're going to talk about the Seir Mishdaleach, the Seir Azazel, um, the two goats uh, ceremony, the one that gets like sent off to the wilderness, another kind of big, somewhat misunderstood, confusing part of the ceremony. So that's for next week. Um, but today we're going to kind of focus broadly on, on the Avodah. Um, and my goal really as we learn together is really for this to be as interactive as possible. I'm going to pause for reflection, you know, a few times throughout to take questions, comments, thoughts, um, but really burning questions are fine. Also feel free to throw something in the chat or put your hand up, you know, in between the two of us here, we'll be able to hopefully see your comments and, uh, and call on you as we go through. Um, so let's start. So we're going to start, um, source number one is the main Vayikra text. Um, so there is a lot going on in this parak in this service. So to kind of try to keep things organized, I know I'm very much a visual learner. I tried to put different colors um, and I kind of divided, we're going to see, we're going to go through the different pages here. I divided this chapter, the different stages of the Avodah up into different colors um, using very helpful book. Um, it's a Methlad Herzog Educator's Guide on Vayikra, and they do a very good job of colorful charts. So I kind of took it from that. Um, and we're going to go through, we'll read through this now. And I want you to keep in mind as we read through it, and I'll, I'll give like a description, you know, what are any questions, observations, insights that arise from this text as we read through it together? And just one final piece of information, it's important to note that this text really only describes the kind of unique aspect of the service to Yom Kippur, like what the Kohen Gadol was doing on Yom Kippur that he wasn't doing on any other day, but his day actually started earlier than this. So even though it's not mentioned here, he was still in the morning um, doing the regular daily offerings, the regular Korban Tamid in his fancy regular gold clothes before, you know, he switches to the Yom Kippur service. And also not included in this is part of the kind of closing ceremonies, the Musaf offerings, the extra, you know, additional offerings, which are really described in Sefer Bamid Bar for Yom Kippur, which come up later as well. But this is kind of like what's what's unique to Yom Kippur. So with that, let's jump in. So I'm going to read in the Hebrew where you can, I'll translate as I go along, but you can follow along in either the Hebrew or the English. So we're starting here, source number one, the introduction. And I want us again to keep in mind also how this chapter is kind of framed and introduced. Um, so it starts off, here's our introduction. So God speaks to Moshe after the death of Aaron's two sons, who died when they drew too close to the presence of Hashem. Here talking about Nadav and Avihu, Aaron's sons who died a few chapters earlier when they brought a foreign fire right into the Mishkan on the eight-day dedication ceremony. We're going to speak about that a little bit later today. Don't worry. Um, so that's kind of like the framing for that. And God says to Moshe, tell Aaron your brother, do not come whenever you want into the Kodesh, into the sanctuary. Um, before, um, you know, behind the curtain. He's not to really go whenever he wants to cross the partition. That was the curtain that separated uh, the final stage before the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the inner shrine in which you had the Aron, the Ark, and the Kaporet, which is the gold cover with the two kind of cherubim, right, the, the angels kind of over it, which was the place from which God's voice or God's word would emanate. Um, inappropriate for humans to ever kind of see that directly. That's why you always have the partition. And Aron is not to go there, um, you know, uh, without like, whatever he wants. So when can he go through? He can go through, we're going to see with this following ceremony, as long as there's a cloud. Um, and the Mepharsh and the commentators see this as kind of the cloud Aaron will create himself through the incense um, and along with some other sacrifices as well. So that's kind of our intro. It continues on in this next section we're going to do in blue, where before the actual purification or atonement purification ceremony actually takes place, there's a lot of prep that Aaron has to do that's part of the service. So what is the preparation? The first step really of this preparation um, is the clothing. So it starts off, but I just want to mention actually before we get to, uh, before we start this, that it's interesting, Yom Kippur has not been mentioned once yet. So that's just one thing to keep keep in mind. 
So let's jump to the Hakanot, the preparation, Pasuk um, 4, Pasuk Dalet. So the first thing is the clothes. For this, Aaron is wearing special clothes. He's not wearing his fancy gold clothes. He is wearing the Ketonet Bad. He is wearing linen, white clothes um, for this actual service. So that's the first part over here. And then we'll skip down a few Pesukim to Pasuk Bav. Um, and Aaron has to set up different Korbanot. So what is the first Korban that's happening? Um, so Aaron first has to bring atonement for himself um, and his family. He's going to bring a bull as a sin offering, as a chatat. And that's kind of the first aspect, the first korban that he is setting up, setting up this idea, right? You need atonement for yourself before you ask for atonement for other people. And we'll keep going. Um, We're actually, this is more for next week. But the next thing Aaron has to do is he's, you know, atoned, he's set up his atonement for himself, his family. Now he has to atone for the Jewish people. So that is going to be the double goats, the two goats who are going to be the seers here. Let's read the first Pasuk, Pasuk Zion. He's going to take the two goats and stand them before Hashem. There's going to be a lottery. One will be chosen for God um, and one will be chosen for Azazel. Um, you can, it's kind of a mix, which one's a better fate. Azazel gets taken to the desert and kind of tossed off a cliff. And the one for God gets burned up um, in an offering. So stay tuned for next week. We'll do a deep dive in that. But the ultimate kind of side for this is that like now these korbanot atone for the people. So Aaron's atoned for himself. Now he's going to atone for the people. Jump down to Pasuk 11, Pasuk Yodalf. And now, interestingly enough, it actually repeats about Aaron's korban. And says, He then still takes that bull to make atonement for himself and his household, um, and he slaughters it. So the rabbis actually jump in here, because big question, why are we repeating this in Pasuk 11? Scroll back up. We just spoke about this in Pasuk 6. And they add here a second confession, a second vidoy. And you will you might remember this from the text of the Mafsar. This is one of the, uh, the places where the rabbis kind of expand on the text. And they say the first part, Aaron atoned for himself and his family. And now he's atoning for kind of the greater tribe of all of the Kohanim, basically. Um, you might remember some of the texts, you know, Ana Hashem chatati aniu beti you know, I've sinned before you, you know, God, my, 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 me and my family um, and all of the sons of Aaron, all of the Kohanim, and, you know, leans his hands on it. So another place where the rabbis kind of expand on this text that we see in the Moxar. Um, So now he's done the sacrifice. So he's done the change of clothes. He's done sacrifice for him. The two, the two kind of goats have been taken care, care of of atonement for the people. And the final stage of introduction or sorry, preparation before the actual atonement is the ketoret, is the incense service. Um, and it's interesting here that most scholars, um, or most commentators really don't see the ketoret, the offering of the incense as like an intrinsic, you know, part of the service. It's more as something that allows Aaron to go into the Kodesh HaKadoshim, to go into the inner sanctuary, to then do the atonement, to then kind of allow for the atonement to take place. And here again, you know, Aaron will take, he takes the um, he takes the panful of the, of the coals and the incense, and he goes behind the curtain, and by pouring one on the other, he creates this cloud which allows him to go into the Kodesh HaKadoshim, which allows him to go into the shrine. So a couple of notes about this. Number one is actually offering the incense was a daily service that usually took place right outside the inner shrine, the Kodesh HaKadoshim, in front of the parochet, in front of the kind of curtain, where you already had that natural separation between man and God. But now that Aaron is kind of reaching that, I mean, he's doing the ceremony, he's allowed in, but he's going in before God, it would still be almost inappropriate for him to see the ark, see the Aaron, you know, in front of him. So he has to kind of create this cloud by himself to have like this additional um, shield almost. Um, interesting side note, there was a big debate about how to offer the incense between the rabbis and the tzedukim, a rival sect at that time. The rabbis believed when it says you do it lifnei Hashem before God, it means you go in to the inner sanctuary and then you pour the Torah to create the smoke screen. Um, the tzedukim felt you should do it beforehand and you walk in with it. Um, different reasons for that. They, they believe there's like a midrash. They say, you know, that like you wouldn't go to a party um, or to a meal where the incense wasn't already burning. So how can you go before God and not already have the incense burning? Some see it as like, we want more of a human element in it. Either way, it was a huge debate to the extent that we see this a little bit in the, um, how the rabbis expand the text. They used to make the Kohen Gadol swear and take an oath 
that he wasn't at Saduki, that he wouldn't try to call an audible, you know, and make a game time switch as he's going into the Kodesh Kedoshim to, to fulfill it in the way of the Tzadukim. So that's just another kind of, you know, interesting kind of tidbit as we go through it. So now all of the introduction has happened and we get to the purple, which is the actual atonement is going to now happen. This is what we came for. This is like the, the main part um, of the ceremony. Um, and what's fascinating here, um, what we're going to see is it seems that the actual objects or the areas of the Mishkan actually need atonement for how they've been impacted by the Jewish people's sins over the course of the year. Fascinating. Um, and we'll you know break this down a little bit after. Um, and basically we'll just summarize part of part of this, um, you know, starting from over here, uh Pasuk Yudalit, Pasuk 14. Basically, the Kohen Gadol takes the blood from his sacrifice from the bull and the blood of the people's sacrifice of the goat mixes them all together, and he starts sprinkling it on all the different stuff, basically. Um, we'll jump down to Pasuk Tadzain, Pasuk 16. He does it first, um, you know, um, onto the ark itself and onto the cover, the, the kaport with the two, you know, um, kind of angels, the cherubim, right? We're, we're up there, Pasuk Tadzain. And he should purge the shrine of the impurity and transgression of the Israelites, whatever their sins. We'll skip down a little bit more, than, and I cut the Pasuk in half because now it says, um, not just the Aron and the Kaporet, we also have to atone in the Kodesh, right? But we have to atone for the Ohel Moed. Ohel Moed, very interesting term, the tent of meeting. Lulang means different things in different times of Tanakh. It could be like Moshe's breakaway tent, right? Where he talks to God. It could be the precursor to the Mishkan. Most Mepharsh and most commentators see it here as like the Heichal or the, not the inner, inner sanctuary, but like the next level where the Kohanim would go. This also has been impacted by our sins. Ken Yasel Ohel Moed HaShochen uh, we shall also do this for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurity. Um, and then next up is the altar. We go to the altar of the Ketorah, which is outside, highlighted um, the, the underlined line in, in Pasuk uh, 19, Yutat. And he should purify it from the defilement of the Israelites. Um, you know, the next Pasuk actually, right, just like he had done it to the Kodesh, the Ohomoed, the Mizbeach all these objects need purification. And finally, the people need purification. And this is done for what we'll talk about next week, which is the sending away of the goats. We send away the people's sins. And then they are finally atoned for. And Pasuk Gimel, which we'll see is, is going to end up being a little bit controversial, um, says that Aaron comes to the Ola Moed when he's done with everything and he changes his clothes um, and he leaves them there and he's done. Wardrobe switch, switches to gold clothes. The rest of the service, this is in yellow, um, Pasuk 24 and on. Um, he puts on the gold clothes. Aaron finishes the day. He burns anything left over that he needs to burn. The Musaf offerings are, are, are given, right? We bring that in from, from Sefer Bamid Bar. Um, and everything that he still has to do gets done, checklist, follow the day. And finally, finally, we have not mentioned this yet once, but in Pasuk 29, Pasuk Haftet, we finally talk about Yom Kippur. And for the next bunch of Sukim, it talks about how it's going to happen, you know, the 10th day of the month. You have to afflict yourself. All the rules that we know about Yom Kippur finally get mentioned. And that wraps up our parak. Um, So I want to pause here. Um, I have many questions, but I would like to pause and hear if anyone here, you can post in the chat. You can raise your hand. You know, we've seen kind of the, you know, the different service over here of the Kohen Gadol, a lot going on from the introduction to the end. What questions do you have? What jumps out of you? Um, what have you observed? If you want to throw things in the chat, um, I'd love to hear, and then I'll share some observations um, as well. I spent a lot of time as a high school teacher, so I know I, I'm very comfortable with wait time. So I'm happy to wait till, uh, you know, we can give people some time to reflect. But if you don't want to, you know, unmute yourself, you can definitely post in the chat um, as well. Something I was just thinking about is, um, although like today, like Judaism seems kind of really class egalitarian, there was like such a social strata with the Kohenim and the Levim in Yisrael during this time with the Beit HaMikdash. And there's something uh, really interesting, maybe nice. I don't know. I kind of haven't decided that on like, this holiest day we kind of like put ourselves on the top of the hierarchy no matter where we normally exist we're kind of like um all on one plane yeah 
That's beautiful. I, I think for sure. And even the Cohen Gadol, even within this lens where he's like running the show, he's wearing the white simple clothes. You know, it's kind of like almost he's not in his usual stature. He's, he's much more kind of toned down for it, for sure. No, I think that's great. Um, I'll, I'll keep going, but, you know, I'll throw in my questions, but definitely feel free to keep posting the chat. People have questions. Um, so a couple of questions I'll throw out. First of all, does this even happen on, is this only about Yom Kippur? Or can a Kohen Gadol go into the Beit HaMikdash, not the Beit HaMikdash, really, the Kodesh Kodoshim, the inner shrine, whenever he wants, as long as he does the ceremony? Because that's kind of how it reads from the beginning, right? We only really talk about Yom Kippur from the end. And I'll ask kind of a broader question, um, you know, which I think gets to the essence of it. You know, how close can we get when seeking out God or holiness? What are the boundaries, um, you know, of time? Is it whenever we want? Is it only on specific days of space? Can I go into the Kodesh Kedoshim? If I can, why do I need a barrier? Why do I need the incense? You know, why do I need that? Um, another question, what's the significance of connecting this to the death of Nadav and Abihu? Um, what's the role of the Ketoret, right? The incense um, and the entire service of sprinkling of blood? Like, are we atoning for people, objects? Why do objects need atonement? They're not, you know, sentient beings. Why, like, where does that come from? Um, and finally, you know, how can we connect to all of this today when our Yom Kippur experience looks so radically different. So we're going to try next 40 minutes or so to answer as many of these as we can. Um, and feel free to jump in with comments. Um, we, we just have one coming in on, on the chat okay. right now. Great. Do, you, do any Mafashim comment on the opening with uh, the mention of Nadav and yes. his death? Tuned in five minutes. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> That's going to be our first. I'm going to give one more intro and then we're going to talk about that. So don't worry. Um, and I'm curious, I'll throw the question back at you. Why? Well, Paul, I'll let you think about it for a few minutes, but I'd love to hear also why you think, you know, like it connects it back to Nadav and Abihu also. So great question. Um, okay, so one just technical thing I wanted to point out, because I, I think it's interesting and it builds on one of these questions. Um, I'm going to jump back up for this was this um, verse over here, the last verse of the actual atonement ceremony, Pasuk Klav Gimel, Pasuk 23, I spoke before about how it's a little bit controversial or bothered, like the rabbis are really bothered by it. So what's interesting here is after the Kohen Gadol finishes everything he's doing, he's bloods on everything, he's atoned for everything. He goes back to the Kodesh Kedoshim, right? And he takes off the white clothes and leaves him there. And then Sumli goes on with his day in his gold clothes to finish off the service. So the rabbis are really bothered by this. And I'm gonna skip to the sources over here. Um, that we'll actually pause for one second um, before we talk about why they're bothered. The order, just in case anyone wanted like a visual chart, according to the shot or the simple reading of the chapter that we just read is, you know, there's three wardrobe changes. The Kohen Gadol wears gold for the morning stuff, white clothes for the entire, you know, prep and purification. And then he returns to the Kodesh highlighted in yellow to change his clothes. And then he finishes off everything else in gold. The rabbis switch the whole order because they're so bothered by that pasuk. And we'll look at source number three for that, the Gemara and Yoma. The rabbis basically say, how could it be that, you know, half an hour earlier, probably a few hours earlier, right? Many hours earlier, the Kohen Gadol could only enter the like inner sanctuary with this whole ceremony and the incense and everything like that. And now at the end, he can like waltz back in to kind of just change his clothes and then leave. It seems disrespectful. It seems inappropriate, you know, not conducive to like the awe of this place. Um, so the rabbis basically add in a reason for why the Kohen Gadol goes back. And you see this basically source number three. Um, I'll just read the highlighted part. Why does he go back? And it can't just be to change his clothes. That would be, you know, super disrespectful. He goes in to get the spoon and the incense plate that he had left there before and bring it out. And the rabbis are like more comfortable if there's like a reason why he's going in. But not just that, they then flip the order, which is interesting. And they say, Every single thing that you read in this chapter happened chronologically correct, except for that one verse. And the rabbis flip it. And they basically put verse 23 after verse 24. I'll just scroll up so you can see what that looks like. Um, and basically say like the Kohen Gadol finishes everything, changes into gold clothes, does everything, does a lot of the other stuff, then goes back to white clothes, and goes in to get the spoon and the plate, and then finishes off his day. And I'll go back just to a chart if that was a little bit confusing because there's a lot going on there. Here's the updated order um, where they basically kind of add in, they switch the order, add the reason, 
and add in kind of this extra wardrobe change. And I wanted to share this, you know, before we talk about Nadav and Avihu, just for a couple of reasons. One is that I want us to be cognizant when we're in Shul and Yom Kippur and we're in synagogue of the differences between the shot, the simple reading of the text and the moxar. And this is a big change the rabbis do. Um, I'll just, we'll talk about it outside, but in source number five, the rabbis go on for many pages in the Gemara to look for, for like a proof text for this, but they believe there should be five immersions, five wardrobe changes on Yom Kippur, and they kind of expand the service, even though the, the simple reading of the text only has three. And the rabbis would say that the simple reading of the text only has three, because it was more expedient to just have the Torah talk about anything that Kohen Gadol did wearing white, put that in the same section. But really, that's not the order, because there were five switches, right? Um, but it's interesting, I think, for us to see first how the rabbis diverge a little bit from the text when they want to kind of add extra things in. Um, and the second point is, I think, goes to our core question, which is, the, like, how could it be you would just waltz back into the, to the Kodesh for, to change your clothes? It would have to be for a significant reason. I think that this, you know, awe or trepidation around entry is also something that we're going to see reflected here. So I just wanted to refer to that at the beginning. Um, and as we go on, I want to answer some of these questions. We'll answer the Dov in a minute. That's coming down over here in section four. Um, but I also wanted to comment on one of the questions I asked earlier, which is when does this service take place? Um, is this something that the Kohen Gadol could do whenever he wanted to enter the um, Kodesh Kedoshim? He just has to do the ceremony? Or is it limited only to Yom Kippur? So this is actually a machloka. It's actually a debate. Rashi um, this is source number six over here. This is very clearly, you cannot go in whenever you want. It is only limited to Yom Kippur, right? You can only go in on Yom Kippur, not whenever you please. Why only Yom Kippur? Because the entire last section of this chapter talks about Yom Kippur. So it must be that the whole chapter is talking about Yom Kippur, right? On the seventh month of the 10th day of the month. So you can only go in on Yom Kippur. But there is a fascinating Midrash in source seven that the Vilna Gaon actually holds by, um, but he believes that it was only limited to our own and not to future Kohen Gadol's. Um, I'll read the Midrash, so it's fascinating. So I'm a Rabbi uh, Yehuda by Rabbi Simon. Rabbi Yehuda, son of Rabbi Simon, said, Moshe was pained over this, you know, this law, the, the whole service that was given to him. And he said, Oi, Maybe my brother has been driven out from the inner space at all times. Like, does this mean that my brother Aaron can no longer go into the Kodesh Kedoshim whenever he wants to connect, to get close to God? He can only go in on Yom Kippur. Amar Kodesh Baruch Hu Lamosha Lo Kashem Savor. And God chimes in and says, no, that is incorrect. We'll skip to the last line. Actually, this is kind of like a big kind of mind twist here, right? That like Aaron can go in whenever he wants. He just has to do this entire ceremony. As long as he has this entire ceremony, all the Kohen, all the Korbanot, right? The goats, the sprinkling of the blood, he can actually go in whenever he wants, not just on Yom Kippur. Um, fascinating. So uh, I want to share just a couple of takeaways from this. And I'm curious what people think. Um, and some of these, I gave like a reading list at the end. If you want to look at some articles or a lot of Fascinating articles, um, you know, a lot put out by by the virtual Beit Midrash, Rishon Har Tzion, that talks a lot about this. Um, and one idea that I, that I took that I thought was very interesting was one takeaway could be that the need to for us to cultivate our own religious aspirations for holiness. And and what I mean by that is what we're going to see is a theme here, and this is going to get this is going to really we're going to see this when we talk about Nadav and Avihu and and why that's like our entry framework. Um, that there's a lot of competing values when it comes to Yom Kippur or, or this text about the Yom Kippur Avoda. On one hand, there's a natural religious aspiration for holiness. We want to get close to God. We want to feel uh, to advance in our spirituality, right? We want to be there in, that, in the Kodesh Kedoshim strive for holiness. At the same time, there's just pulling back, right? There's this unbridgeable distance between us and God, like human and divine, like we're, we're just different where, you know, how close can we get and how close is appropriate to try and get? Um, similar a lot to a lot of the, the thought of um, Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, you know, a lot of the dialectic, Adam one, Adam two, you know, victory and defeat, majesty and humility. So a lot of kind of those similar themes. Um, and I think you can look at the at Rashi's commentary here, more as pulling back. You only go in on Yom Kippur. That's when it's appropriate to go in uh, to the Kodesh. Um, but I think what's a more powerful, perhaps, message is that of the Midrash, which we said also the Vilna Gaon holds like as well, that this whole ceremony provides a realization or an outlet 
for the Kohen Gadol's aspirations for holiness. Maybe it shouldn't just be on Yom Kippur. Maybe he can enter whenever he wants to connect and he wants to feel this closeness. And this closeness should be something that he should be encouraged uh, to seek out, right? And I think it's fascinating also that on Yom Kippur, this is mandatory, right? If you want atonement for the people, you have to seek out the closeness. Like you can't ask God for forgiveness if you're not going in there to have that relationship. At the same time, this need for our, our you know, outlet, we'll say for spirituality, can never be separated from the community. Um, what's so interesting here is that anytime the Kohen Gadol wants to go in, even if he just wants like a moment of spiritual solitude, um, he still has to bring not just his own individual sacrifices for atonement, but the communal ones as well. He still has to do the whole two goat communal sacrifice for atonement for the Jewish people and the sprinkling of the blood. Um, and I think that there's, there's a very powerful lesson here that, you know, as much as he can go in and no other Jew is allowed to do that, um, he can only do this once he processes, there's a whole process of atonement for himself and for the people. You can't have this elevated spiritual experience divorced from the Jewish people. And I think especially in Yom Kippur, when we're constantly balancing the individual and communal values, right? When am I saying the confession, the vidui for my own sins? When am I saying it on behalf of the community? Um, remember this lesson that like our kind of spiritual aspirations always should come with the community in mind as well, right? Like we're not just asking for forgiveness for ourselves, but we want God to forgive the entire Jewish people. So I think just a really interesting framework of how of how we see this through this debate. Um, so I'm curious, I know we'll get to the Davin of you in a minute, but I'm curious just to pause here if anyone has thoughts on that. Like does it change our view of the service of Yom Kippur if this could theoretically be done by the Kohen Gadol of any day of the year. So I see some comments now that I have my chat up, right? Risks are too high to allow Cohen to go in whenever he wants. Only Moshe could do this. Interesting. I don't know if you mean our own in the sense, but meaning that, you know, a little bit more limited, right? Like there's danger here. And we'll see it with Adavan Avihu, right? Maybe we need to control who's going in and when they're going in for sure. If anyone else has thoughts, I'm curious to hear. We'll give people a minute if other people have any thoughts. Um, otherwise, I think this is a good segue to talk a little bit about Nadav and Avihu. And I'm just going to jump back up to the beginning of the source sheet for one second over here. Um, but the opening line, um, oh, I see another comment and I'll see it over here. So the shadows of humility. Interesting, right? And it's interesting, right? Kind of as you're commenting here that it's it's almost the individual where there's there's there is that focus that not so many people are involved, right? In everything um that's going on right and where exactly do we see as much as individuals you know he, he's still we still have these individuals working on behalf of the group for sure um but it is interesting right that like it, it was a little more of a spectator sport right was going on on Yom Kippur right it was like the individuals doing everything for the group not everyone was having that that experience kind of a, as Lily, I think you you shared at the beginning right a little bit more of a the individual focus for sure um, so when we think about Nadav and Avihu, and I want to go back to the introduction over here, Pasuk Aleph, um, this entire ceremony is framed um, by saying that these laws are given after the death of Nadav and Avihu. Um, they died because they got too close. What's the proper way to come to come close to God? It's through this ceremony. So why talk about Nadav and Avihu? So let's jump down to what we were up to, which I believe was source here, source eight. Um, and, you know, someone asked before, you know, do any commentators talk about this? And many of the commentators kind of view the uh, the avodah or the service on Yom Kippur as a tikkun or rectification for the sin of Nadav and Avihu. Um, and in fact, and we'll here we'll talk a little about what exactly they did wrong. Um, there's a lot of similarities between the story of Nadav Avihu and here our chapter on the Yom Kippur service. Um, first of all, what exactly happens? Just a, a quick recap, right? If we refresh our memories, earlier a few parrots on, um, right? On the eighth day of the Miluim, the eighth day of the Mishkan, the temple dedication ceremony, um, everything was going smoothly. And Dominavi who decide to bring their own foreign fire that was not commanded, and they bring Ketoret, um, and they are struck down by the fire of God, and that kind of, you know, an abrupt, uh, abrupt halt, kind of, or, or you know, switches a celebration to to one of mourning. Um, and that's kind of what happens with Nadav and Avihu. And, and some of the similarities, first of all, we see that both Nadav and Avihu are trying to approach God with Ketoret, similar to exactly what our own is doing on the Yom Kippur service. Um, and we won't get into the, the kind of nitty gritty of it now, but there's actually a lot of parallels between the Korbanot, the sacrifices our own brings as part of the Yom Kippur service and the sacrifices that are brought on the eighth day of the Miluim 
um, of the dedication ceremony in the, of the Mishkan um, when Adam and Avihu um, died as well. But I think more importantly, um, this really gets back to that dialectic we spoke about before, wanting to get close to God, but realizing there are limits. The tension that's present in how close we let the Kohen Gadol get to the Kodesh Kedashim, or how often. And Adam and Avihu crossed that line. And the Yom Kippur service is about reminding the Kohen Gadol, reminding us to be cognizant of that line. Um, and interesting, most commentators really believe that Adav and Avihu had very good intentions. I brought in source nine, the Sifra, um, that says that, you know, they were just so overjoyed, so happy um, when they saw everything was happening. When they saw the, the new fire from God, they wanted to add love to love. And it was really genuine reasons. They wanted to draw close to God. They wanted to reciprocate. But this was not something that was commanded. And it's interesting also, this wasn't really Adam and Avihu's first, first strike when it came to that. If you look at source 10, um, it's interesting that we're told that Mahmoud Harsinai at Harsinai, Nadav and Avihu and a few other select select individuals had like box seats to uh, to God's revelation, basically. Um, and it says, you know, they saw this great revelation of God even closer than the regular people. And Pasuk Yedal, Pasuk 11 tells us, that God did not, um, it's probably capital H there, but he did not lay his hands on these nobles of the children of Israel, which implies that God considered it or kind of thought about it. Um, and they saw God and they ate and drank, uh, which different commentators describe this in different ways, but it almost seems that the same problem with Adav and Abihu of like this, this kind of comfort with a little bit too much comfort with closeness to God, they're eating, they're drinking, they're enjoying the show. And God even considers like, you know, striking them down, but doesn't. But when they do it again, even again, coming from good reasons, but, you know, bringing that foreign fire, that's when they get um, struck down. And I think here with our own, you know, we see the tikkun, the rectification for this. You need that enthusiasm. We want that enthusiasm. We don't want that to disappear. Um, but you have to understand the distance that ne that's needed. And the ketoret, the incense, right, is, is not the, it's not just a mechanism that grants you immediate entry to God. Um, it protects you kind of, you know, helps bridge that distance, that natural distance between like the, the fire of God and, and you know, our humanity. Um, but that works only when you're following procedure. Um, and it's actually a, a beautiful idea I wanted to connect to here um, from Rabbi Yair Khan, who's a, a, a rabbi, a ram at Yeshivat Haaretzion in Israel, who writes about this. Um, and he says that if we're to read this, as most people read this as kind of a, a tikkun, a rectification for the sin of Nadam and Avihu, why isn't the Yom Kippur service given to us or given to Moshe to give to Aaron immediately after the death of Madav and Avihu? And if you see this little nice chart outline here of the outline of the beginning of the book of Vayikra, you know, chapter 10 is when Nadav and Avihu died. Chapter 16 is a Yom Kippur service. And then chapters 11 to 15 break it up with all these laws about childbirth, you know, tsarat, forbidden, uh, forbidden foods, um, laws governing, uh, you know, people's sexual intimacy and different, you know, emissions that come from that. So, so why this whole separation? Um, and he explains, and I'll actually just read his quote because I think he says it really, really well, and I'll unpack it, that from the beginning of Vayikra up until the revelation of the Shekhinah on the eighth day, the Torah addresses only one aspect of religious experience, the possibility of coming close to God. We'll skip to, you know, it talks about the Dabin of you being killed. We'll skip to the next underline. In this context, the partial relating to the various types of ritual impurity come to emphasize the other aspect of religious experience and to teach us about the infinite abyss that separates between human reality and divine reality. And what he really explains here, which I, I found personally very powerful, was that this break in Sefer Baikra about all these laws about, you know, impurity and uh, is very intentional. And it's helping us understand the lesson that Adam Navi who missed, which is that there's there's potential for closeness with God, but there's also tremendous distance between human and God. We're humans. We die. We become impure. Um, there's childbirth, sexual intimacy, eating and drinking. None of this is negative, but this is the basis of our humanity. There can be closeness, but we have to understand the, the limits between human and divine. Um, and that's really the, the purposeful break over here to kind of remind us of, of that. It was also like a pendulum, you could see, of like potential for closeness for God, but understanding kind of the limits. And, and I think this is a, 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 such an interesting balance to think about on Yom Kippur, because on one hand, um, you know, we're think about how we dress on Yom Kippur. We dress in white we try to act like angels. We try to deny our humanity. We don't eat, we don't drink, we don't anoint ourselves. We abstain from sexual intimacy. 
you know, um, but at the same time, think about some of the words we read throughout the day, especially the, the slichot that are included, the penitential prayers, you know, that we say, you know, we're human, God, we sin, you know, we're, we're made from earth, you know, we need atonement. And perhaps it's, it's again, that pendulum of like, we're understanding distance, but also embracing our humanity, you know, when it comes, comes to Yom Kippur and, and like that, that balance when it comes to, you know, allowing our own, this closeness, this entry um, on Yom Kippur, but being very cognizant of what happened with Nadav um, and Avihu. And, and I'm going to skip a couple of sources just for the sake of time. Um, but I want to go to source 15. I want to just share like another instance in Tanakh, another instance in the Bible, where we see kind of a similar sin with Ketoret, with incense, that parallels what Nadav and Avihu did. And I think it's, it's we see this, this is an adaptive issue for the Jewish people. It's not just Nadav and Avihu that had trouble with this. Um, and that's the story of Korach's rebellion. Um, a lot to talk about with Korach's rebellion, but I want to highlight one part of the group that he had recruited, which is a 250 Nesiei Haida, the 250 chieftains, um, who also were kind of recruited to Korach's rebellion under the slogan of, all of us are holy and all of us should have equal access to holiness, to God, to service, right? Um, right. Kikol Haida, Kulam Kiroshim, and Paso Gimel, Paso 3, like for all the community is holy. And Moshe's reaction to this kind of, you know, pushback, this rebellion of, of, of wanting this closeness is, okay, what's the showdown going to be? Pasuk Vav. Zotasu kulachem maftot korach bekoladato, v'tnu bahem ish v'simoleim ketorat l'tnei Hashem machar, v'ya isha sherifchar Hashem hua kadosh. We'll cut off there. Um, Pasuk 6 and 7, right? Go take fire pans. Take ketorah. Take the incense, right? You're going to put incense in them tomorrow before God. And whoever's left standing, whoever God chooses, that's the person who can, who will be chosen, chosen to serve. And, you know, if we remember the ending, doesn't end well for those 250 Nesiei Haida. Um, they, you know, fire comes out from God and consumes the 250 ones who are bringing Ketoret. Um, you know, interesting, Sheer for another time to parallel the story of Adav and Avihu directly to this story. Like, didn't, didn't, they, didn't they know what happened to Adav and Avihu? Why are they doing this, you know, why did they agree to this deal, to this kind of showdown? Uh, fascinating kind of approaches to that. Um, but here I think we see the same, the same idea that Ketoret isn't this like natural protection. It, it it works if you're following the rules. And I think that's kind of like the message here. There's like appropriate ways to approach God to channel, you know, that the access to holiness, uh, but it has to be done kind of in the right um, way. And here too, right? They brought the 250, brought a foreign fire and they're killed the same way as Nadav and Avihu. Um, and what's, what's so interesting here is, is how the story continues. So in source 17, the Jewish people are not happy with how this ended, even though they weren't really part of the technical rebellion. And they kind of clamor against Moshe and Aaron and say, Pasuk Bab, Pasuk 6, Hashem, you killed so you, you, you came and killed all of these, all of these great Jewish people, you know, through this, through this showdown. God is not very happy, and a plague starts. Um, an interesting pasuk Yudala, pasuk eleven, Vayomer Moshe Aaron, Kafa Tamachtev, Atenalei Eish Malam Isbeach Basim Ketoret, and the way to end the plague. And I'll summarize this. You can look, you know, Pesukim uh, um, eleven through through thirteen. Moshe tells Aaron, go and take Ketoret and go out to the plague. And if you look at the last pasuk, pasuk thirteen, Vayamod Ben Ameitimu Ben Achayim Batatzera Magefa, he stands between the dead and the living till the plague was checked. That smoke. From the Ketoret that usually protects our and the Kodesh Kedoshim as he approaches God to, to ask for forgiveness on Yom Kippur, um, is the is the division here between who stays alive and who doesn't in the plague. Again, seeing Ketoret, it's not Ketoret that's destructive, right? It's it's again, it's a shield, it's a protection um, in specific ways, which I think is interesting also. Um, but the tragic part is finally source 18. People don't get the lesson. And the last kind of line we have here, Pasuk Chafet, Pasuk 28, is the people basically say to Moshe, we're lost. Anyone who goes next to God's Mishkan, anyone who tries to get close to God, they, they die. That's just what happens, um, which is not the message at all that's trying to be given, but that's the message that people take. Um, and I think here also, just like a very, Kind of hard or kind of sad ending to that narrative that you know can we ever get close without dying perhaps the answer is yes peric 16 right this is the way this is the channel this is how to go through proper time proper space um you know this is when people can get close to god through these through these channels 
Um, so a lot, I think, to think about over here, but I think it's, again, that pendulum, you know, of like human versus divine, wanting to seek out that closeness, but appreciating the distance. Um, yeah, so I see a great, great question over here, right? I think that's the big question. So maybe, maybe, uh, I'll, well, I'll come back to give a share on Adav and Avihu versus Korach, Korach and his rebellion. Um, there's a great article. If you can you see my contact info on the source sheet, send me an email. I'll send you an article from, from um, that I saw online that addresses this question a little bit. Um, there's an approach that maybe, um, you know, Korach's followers knew what would happen and they did it anyways. They were like going to be in the desert, dying out. You know, they had no future and they wanted to kind of find any way to, like they thought maybe there was a chance it could work. Um, but that I think is the big question, right? That like they're told to do it. So how foreign is this fire? Unless it's almost like, Think about it with Paro, like you harden someone's heart, you know, like that's part of the punishment. Like they maybe they should have known to step back. But I think that's that's a great question. I think that's the big kind of divide difference between a Dove and a view and Coral. So for sure. Yeah. I hope I hope this stays up with the with the chat. Otherwise, you know, you can reach out to me uh through Trisha and I'm happy to share that. Um great. So for that, um, so we have about 15 minutes left. So I just want to share two more takeaways um, and then we'll we'll wrap up. So one more takeaway, I'll just scroll up a little bit. Um, is not just that this is a tikkun for the sin of Nadav and Avihu or the error, I want to say sin, the error, right, of Nadav and Avihu maybe here of like how to balance holiness and clo closeness and distance. Um, but it's also a tikkun for the sin of the golden calf. And I think we have a lot of allusions as we read this parak also to the sin um, of the Feta Egel um, in a few different ways. Number one, timing. Um, Yom Kippur is considered the anniversary. I actually put the source later on. We'll just jump down a little bit too. Source 23, Rashi does a lot of math in this um, in this commentary in Source 23. Um, oh, sorry, not 23. I'm going for 24. I'm sorry. Um, Rashi in Source 24 does a lot of math to figure out, you know, does the 40 days up and down and figures everything out that it was definitely on, uh, you know, the 10th of Tishrei on Yom Kippur when God gives us a second Luchot and we are finally considered forgiven for the sin of the golden calf. So that's our first connection. Now we'll go back up so we can do this in order. Um, First connection being the timing, you know, Kippur being that anniversary of us being forgiven. Number two is the clothing. Very pretty famous kind of line here in the Gemara. People might have heard it quoted in different ways that the reason why the Kohen Gadol doesn't wear his gold clothes for the essence of the service is the Ein Katigor Nases Anigor. You know, like if he's going to be the, the advocate, the, de the defense attorney, he can't dress like a prosecutor, right? He can't, he can't be wearing clothing that's going to, you know, remind God of our sin, you know, of, of our sin of the golden calf. Um, but number three is really a fascinating idea that I heard. We're going to go back to Rabbi Yair Khan over here in a different article that he said. And he points out that there are almost exact parallels between the, the different korbanot that Aaron brings in the Yom Kippur service and other korbanot that, that can basically allude to or make direct connections to his actions um, back in almost facilitating, Aaron does that a little bit against his will, the golden calf. Now I'll read the quote over here and then we'll we'll break it down. And he says, um, you know, the order of the Yom Kippur service is source number 20, includes two central sacrifices whose blood was sprinkled inside the Hefel. An ox brought as the Kohen Gadol sin offering, that was the Par Ben Bakar, um, and the goat that serves as a nation's sin offering. That's the goat that doesn't go to the wilderness, but the seer that's completely burned. Um, it would seem that at these, their root, these sacrifices are meant to atone for the sin of the golden calf. Dot, dot, dot. Next, next underline. The only other sacrificial goat that is burnt in its entirety is the sin offering brought when the nation transgresses with regard to idolatry. Interesting, right? The only other seir that we burn totally, just like the seir la Hashem, um, is one that the Jewish people bring when they're trying to atone for doing avodah zarah. Sounds very familiar. You know, obviously big debate what exactly was happening in the golden calf? Was it actually idolatry? Was it not? But we'll go with like the general sense of idolatry here. There's definitely a connection. Um, continue on a little bit, dot, dot, dot. And the only other individual sacrifice that's entirely burnt is a sin offering brought by the Kohen Gadol when he commits an inversion um, violation. Also super interesting that the Par Kohen HaMashiach, and I'll show you kind of the source in a second, um, when the Kohen Gadol makes a bad judgment call that leads to the Jewish people sinning, he brings a par ben bakar that's completely burnt, very almost exact to the korban that he brings um, as part of the Yom Kippur service. Think about, you know, Aaron's role in, you know, being part of the, the sin of the golden calf, even though he was trying to delay and he was trying to, you know, hey, you get the drill, you know, do this. He's trying to delay. He doesn't want the people to do it. He still is. He was the person left in charge. He still bears a lot of that responsibility. So interesting that they 
sacrifice that he's chosen to bring to atone for himself is one that a Kongadol would naturally bring if they made a judgment call that caused people to sin. So bringing us back to this, I'll just read the last line, right? Aaron must bring atonement for his own part in the calf, as well as for the sin of the nation. For this reason, he's commanded to offer a goat as a sin offering for the nation's inadvertent violation of idolatry and atone for his own part in the sin. He brings an ox as the Kohen's Gadol sin offering. So I think this is, I found this, you know, like very, very cool. Um, and I think that, you know, you can see sources 21, 22, and 23. I tried to bring the sources if you want to, you know, just to check, right? It's the Par Ben Bakar over here. Im Kohen Mashiach Yachteh. If the Kohen Gadol, um, you know, is the one who sins, he brings the same idea, the Par Ben Bakar um, in Zvarim in source 22. It actually says here, this is the one about idolatry. It actually, the first Pasuk says like, Kitasigu Velotosiyot Kola Mitzvot Ha'ele. If you don't, if you fail to observe any of the commandments, but Rashi in 23, this is based on Chazal, based on the rabbi, says, what is that command that you miss? It's idolatry. Um, but again, I think the same idea of seeing Aaron almost going back in time a little bit, like he's the, the original Kohen Gadol, doing the original person doing the service on Yom Kippur. And as he's doing it, he's brought back to that like sin that constantly weighs on his mind, right? His role in the golden calf, his role in the Egel Hazahab. And he's almost like simultaneously atoning for the Jewish people's sins and his own sins, while he's still atoning for his role in that sin from back in the day. And I think um, for all of this, this reminder of the sin of the golden calf on Yom Kippur, it doesn't have to be something negative. I think this actually, and we'll go to source 25 here, um, really highlights the legacy of Chuva that is ever present, both in our own you know, personal legacy and in our national legacy, right? We say, the place where Bali Chuba, people who repent stand, you know, no one else can stand. Um, and I would say this isn't like a stain of the sin, but it's a reminder of, you know, I'm sure for our own, it was, it was painful and it was triggering. And there's lots of Midrashim that talk about even on the eighth day of the Miluim, you know, the Ramban talks about this, like he was going to bring a korban of a, of a cow and, you know, and it, it, it like triggered him. Like, how can I even be the one to do this because of my role? And it, it was definitely something that he always struggled with. Um, but I think, and I just brought in source 25, a beautiful idea in the Gemara of Babatra about how, what was contained in the Aron in the Ark, not just the second complete Lufot, the tablets, but the first broken ones. And they, they stood side by side. And I think it's such a, a validating message for us as we go into Yom Kippur, um, to build up what we saw here, the connection to the Egel Hazakab, to the golden calf, that, you know, it's a reminder that we we got atonement before for, for the for the golden calf. You know, we got atonement. It's a constant reminder. It sits in the Aron. You know, things can be broken and things can be redeemed and we move forward. And I think it's like this, this hopeful message um, on Yom Kippur um, as well. And I'll wrap up with one last takeaway and then I'm going to pause um, for questions and reflections as we wrap up. Um, the last final one, that I wanted to share um, was spring cleaning, uh, a yearly atonement for the temple. Um, and for this, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump back. So just hopefully, call, bear with me for a second um, to the actual atonement ceremony in purple over here. And I want to just address. We mentioned this originally. This idea that we're atoning for objects. What, we're atoning for people. We'll talk about that next week and the, the two goats. But but what's going on over here, right? We're going to atone for the shrine. And then we're going to atone for the Ohel Moed. Then we're going to atone for the Mizbeach. So, so why are we purifying the objects? And for this, I'm going to jump down to the last source. Sorry, hopefully this isn't. There we go. Source number 26. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Yonatan Grossman shares like a beautiful idea, but I'll just introduce it a little bit before. And I think that, you know, we see this as kind of over the course of the year, the Mikdash or the Mishkan, the, the temple, uh, you know, purifies our sins. That's our mechanism for it back in the day. That's our mechanism for atonement, right? We bring korbanot. Today, we just do chuba, and that's enough, right? And it purifies our sins. It's part of that process. But it's it's interesting that almost we take one day a year or we flip it. And now this day on Yom Kippur, we purify the mikdash. Um, you know, and we'll talk more about this next week of how we, we literally like send the sins off to the desert and just send them away. But it's almost like this, this cleaning, this reset. Uh, we're going to use the Mikdash, the Mishkan over the course of a year to help us atone for our sins. But once a year, we're going to kind of clean the slate and like symbolically, you know, objects don't have sin stains on them, you know, but we're going to symbolically clean them. And, and, and Professor Grossman says this, you know, beautifully says over here, um, you know, Yom Kippur marks the renewed birthday of the Mishkan, the point at which it returns to its original state that's allowing the Shekinah to dwell in it in a home 
clean of spiritual impurities. And I think that this is, this really gets the, I guess the symbolism in the title, you know, over here. Um, but you know, it's, this isn't like, you know, how they would clean the Trumat Hadesha and they would clean the ashes off the literal ashes off the, the altar that had kind of built up um, or, you know, scrubbing it down, but symbolically saying that the place where we come to meet God um, also needs to check in, you know, we're, we're, we're wiping the slate and we're, and we're starting again, we're starting clean. And, and I think this is the, the very hopeful nature of Yom Kippur. Um, like the, the hat, you know, we talk about it being, you know, Midrash talks about it. It was one of the happiest days of the year. The essence of the day is mechaper, atones for us. Everything is starting anew. You know, you can think about some of the feelings we feel at the end of Yom Kippur when you hear the shofar blow. Um, that like, you know, we tried our best, hopefully, you know, when it came to atonement, but like we're, everything's cleaned and we're ready to go. And we know we're not going to keep that inspiration of Yom Kippur for long. We're human, as we've seen a theme throughout the Shi'or, and we're going to sin again. Um, but we almost take this time symbolically to clean the mechanisms that help us get atonement so it's prepped and ready to go for when we do sin. You know, and today, obviously, we don't have the Mikdash, we don't have the Mishkan, and it's very kind of foreign, you know, the, the foreign way of thinking about Shuvah and atonement for, for many of us. But I think, you know, as uh, Rabbi Akiva says, you know, before whom do you come or you atoned before Hashem, that today we might not have the temple and the sacrifices, but God is the one who atones for us. It's it's the 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 essence of Yom Kippur. And, and I think the theme here in this last point is, is like that hope. We like clean the mechanism so that we're ready for next time that we sin, knowing that it will happen and knowing that we can move forward from that. And I, I think just to summarize what we spoke about today, and that I'd love to hear thoughts, reactions, kind of questions. Um, you know, we spoke about that essential religious question, how appropriate is it to get close to God, um, you know, or how close is appropriate to get, to get to God. And we spoke about, you know, that debate, you know, maybe the Kohen Gadol could go in whenever he wanted versus just on Yom Kippur, um, showing how we want to give that outlet to the Kohen for, for spiritual connection, but it can't come in a silo. If he wants that spiritual connection and people pointed out in chat, you know, it, it, Yom Kippur seems to be a very individual, you know, there's a few individuals doing a lot of stuff and not many other people, but if he wants that individual closeness, he still has to be doing not just his individual sacrifices, but atoning for the people. It's always the individual and the community tied together. And we spoke about the Nadav and Avihu connection, um, the rectification of the sin of the Dav and Avihu, that balance between getting close to God, seeking that out, but recognizing our humanity. We saw Ketoret incense as a means of, it helps protect you so you can go and see God and get close, that necessary partition, um, but it only works if you're following the rules and how Nadav and Avihu 250 Nisiei Haida, there's differences between them, 250 chieftains with part of Koros Rebellion, they didn't really get that message. And the Jewish people didn't even after. They're, they're, you know, they're saying like, how you're just going to die if you try to get close to God. Um, and kind of the Yom Kippur as being, no, there's a mechanism, there's a system, follow it. And that's how we get close to God. Finally, we spoke about you know, Yom Kippur is a tikkun for Feta Egel, for the sin of the golden calf through the anniversary of the day we got um, atonement for it. We don't wear gold clothes. Um, and finally, just that the echoing of the sacrifices that Aaron brings, bringing him back to atonement for you know, his role in the, in, in the sin of the golden calf, whether by leading the people astray, whether the people doing idolatry and seeing that echoed. And finally, seeing this as the one day of the year as we pause and symbolically even clean the objects in the Mishkan so that we can kind of reset the day uh, and reset the year um, for atonement for us. So I, I want to pause. I'd love to hear comments. I see people posting um, any comments, feel free to unmute yourself also. Um, I see, right, Korach lesson. Yeah, for sure, right? I've seen, right, Ozzy posted, right, that the fire pans are not magic, for sure. And I think that's 100% the lesson with the Ketoret, really with lots of things in Judaism, right? Korbanot aren't magic either. You know, like God doesn't want our Korbanot, that the rituals are there to get us to a different place. They have to be with the right Kavana, um, for sure. Yeah, and like the quote, right, as the Gemara tells us, right, what happened in Second Temple times, for sure. Um, anyone else has comments or po points? I'd love to see them. Otherwise, um, here's some extra reading over here for the reading. And um, my email is at the beginning. I'll just post it up here, sygordon at gmail. Um, so feel free to send me uh, you know, an email. I'm happy to share a source sheet or some following uh, articles. And thank you so much um, to everyone who joined, who shared comments, to Drisha for inviting me. Um, next week, we're going to do a deep dive into the two goats, Seir la Azazel, Seir la Hashem, what is going on with this lottery and this kind of other very mysterious part of the ceremony. Um, but with that, thank you so much. And I'll, I'll turn it back over to uh, Lily. Wow. Thank you so, so much. What a great class. I, I feel like I'm, you know, 
a little bit ready, more ready for Yom Kippur. I can never say I'm ready, but yeah. I, I feel so much more ready to approach it. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you all back here next week for part two. Um, our Ellul's man here at Drisha uh, continues to be very busy with classes from Rabbi Silva, Rabbi John Kelson, Rabbi Sana, and many, many more. You can find out more information about all of those classes um, and register um, at 5783.drisha.org slash uh, And with that, see you next week. Thank you, everyone. Bye, Lizzo.